Access to data enables rare disease stakeholders to do more and accelerate results. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is becoming as savvy about clinical data as clinicians and researchers. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to be empowered data owners and stewards. Attend the Data DIY workshops and view resources at globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Earlier this year, Passage Bio announced its launch with $115.5 million in funding and a group of founders with a strong pedigree. The company's founders include gene therapy pioneer James Wilson, pharmaceutical industry veteran Tachi Yamada, and former Alexion executive and Orbimed venture partner Stephen Squinto. One point of distinction for the company is its unique partnership with the University of Pennsylvania and its gene therapy program, which gives it access to technology developed there, as well as its preclinical translational science capabilities. We spoke to Squinto, interim CEO of Passage Bio, about the company's focus on rare monogenic CNS diseases, its relationship with Penn, and why he's confident with strong data Discussions with payers will not be a problem. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the uh, the show. We're going to talk about Passage Bio Gene Therapy and its portfolio of rare monogenic CNS diseases. Perhaps you can begin with the founding of Passage Bio. How did it come about and what was the opportunity you saw? Yeah, it's a great question, and really the nidus behind the forming of Passage really goes right to the source, which is Jim Wilson, who's a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and probably the foremost pioneer in the field of gene therapy. Jim started his career uh, back at the University of Michigan doing gene therapy pretty much before anyone else in 1984. So he's been doing this for like 35 years. And uh, Jim has created just an enormous network of scientists all dedicated to gene therapy on the campus, medical school campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we at Orbimed, I'm a venture partner uh, at a healthcare investment firm in Manhattan called Orbimed, had heard that Jim wanted to start a biotechnology company centered around the use of gene therapy to cure and correct rare orphan diseases, and we found that to be pretty compelling. Um, I then traveled from Manhattan down to Philadelphia to meet with Jim and see what he has accomplished there, to meet his team, and we were pretty convinced that uh, together with Jim, we could form a company and build what I think will be um, one of the foremost gene therapy companies anywhere in the, in the world, and currently focused on a set of rare orphan monogenic uh, CNS disease. 
Well, in, in focusing on CNS diseases for gene therapy, what are the particular challenges of, of using this approach? Yeah, I think that there are, like, like anything else, pluses and, and minuses, but uh, to focus maybe on the challenges first, because that was the nature of the question, then I can sort of move into why I think it's an exciting area. Challenges are that, you know, developing therapies generally to treat diseases of the brain has been extraordinarily challenging for all of time, essentially. We, we today don't have great medications to treat neurodegenerative diseases, and that has been an ongoing challenge. Uh, difficult to develop therapies. Trials typically are somewhat difficult. Endpoint measurement can be, can be challenging. However, things, I think, are changing. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the investment world, and, and what I've seen over the last few years is a real shift and an interest now in companies, both smaller ones, biotech companies, as well as large pharmaceutical companies, moving into the CNS. And I think that comes from a couple of different angles. One is we're beginning to understand more about the biology of neurodegenerative processes. That, that's important. Um, that has taken a long time to develop, but I think that's now in play. That allows then for strategic thinking around therapies to, develop, to be developed based on the, the biology. And then we're understanding the genetics of neurodegenerative disease better and better and better. Um, and, and that, as you can see, is where Passage Bio sort of focused. So when I met with Jim, we talked about various options on where we would go with our therapies and said, you know, let's follow the genetics where we have diseases of the brain, where we understand the gene defect, that's a great place to start for gene therapy. But now we get back to the negatives or the challenges, as you called them. Well, how do you get the therapy into the CNS or the brain in such a way that it can be an effective strategy? And what impressed me, I think, the most about the work Dr. Wilson and his team have done over the last four to five years is they've taken the time to figure out the best route of delivery to get gene therapies into the brain so that they might work effectively. And that has been and had been a challenge in the field for many, many years. Jim has the advantage of having a fairly significant sized primate center at the University of Pennsylvania so that he could use primates as models, non-human primates as models, to ask and answer those questions, how best can I approach getting these genes into the brain of non-human primates? And doing that work has led to a method of approach that we will use at Passage. So knowing we can get therapeutic proteins into the brain using gene therapy approaches, knowing that the genetics are informative as to which genes we need to replace, I think now opens up new doors of opportunity to finally start to aggressively tackle a number of different uh, neuro neurodegenerative diseases. So I think it's the time is ripe for moving back into the CNS for therapeutic approaches. As you mentioned, you're a partner at Orbimed Advisors, which led a $115.5 million investment round. This is a high-quality group of investors. 
what does it say about where we are with regards to gene therapy that this group of funders is willing to back the pursuit of gene therapies for disease populations that you're targeting? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great way to look at it. You know, these are this is probably these are world class investors. You know, who probably as a group uh, do more diligence before they invest than just about anybody else out there. And I think it's that the answer that I'm going to give is sort of reflective and similar to what I just said, which is, you know, you can couch it all under the time is right. You know, uh, five years ago it probably wasn't right. We, we, we needed to learn more about the biology of these diseases. We needed to learn more about the genetics. We needed to learn more about how to utilize best the tools we have to actually implement therapeutic approaches in the brain. And I think this collection of investors together, after seeing what was accomplished over the last five to ten years, at the University of Pennsylvania under Jim's direction, sort of all came to a collective belief that the time was right to get into this now. You know, it's been a it's been kind of a crazy field and and, and, and Jim as a pioneer has been there, as I said, since the mid eighties where he's seen the good, the bad and the ugly uh, as it applies to gene therapy and felt that now after thirty five years of, of his career devoted to developing the tools for gene therapy, that the time was right because we now have a better handle on the tools, the time was right because we have a better handle on the genetics, and the time is right because we have a better handle on the biology of neurodegenerative disease. So putting all those pieces together, it made sense for this investment group to put that kind of money and backing behind what we think will be, you know, the state-of-the-art gene therapy company for these type of diseases. What's the relationship between Passage Bio and the UPenn gene therapy program going forward? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question and an equally interesting model and a little bit different from a lot of biotech gene therapy companies that I know about, which is to say that you know, when we, when we were able to do our diligence and see what Jim Wilson and his 300-member team have in place at the University of Pennsylvania, and you couple that with the fact that the University of Pennsylvania also has a world-renowned orphan disease center right there within the gene therapy center building, it didn't make much sense to me and I think to our investor group to sort of build a biotech company that would need to replicate everything that's been created at Penn. So what we decided to do instead was just simply tap in to that mountain of resources resident there on campus at Penn. So Passage was then built and is being built as we speak as a first-in-class drug development organization meaning we will have clinical resources, regulatory resources, manufacturing resources, quality resources, and hopefully some point a commercialization group as well. But we're going to rely heavily through sponsored research agreements with Penn to do all the work that we need to do preclinically. 
so once that work has been accomplished, and it's time now to file an IND to move the programs into clinical development, they will then become passage programs directed and orchestrated by passage employees. But up until that point, it, we will be sponsoring work done at, Penn, at University of Pennsylvania to do all of the IND enabling preclinical work because that's what they do so well. And I don't think, frankly, we could replicate that um, to be anywhere near as robust and efficient. You've identified two lead programs. The first is GM1 gagliadosis. With what is GM1? How is it diagnosed, and and how does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, it's a, it's a very very severe, debilitating, in fact life threatening pediatric neurodegenerative disease. It sort of generally falls under the category of diseases that are often referred to as lysosomal storage diseases. In most of these diseases, the genetic defect that occurs leads to a dysfunction in lysosomal protein trafficking. In the case of GM1 gangliosidosis, we know exactly what gene is mutated and what the causes are of those gene mutations. And what happens is this disease typically manifests early in a, in a child's life, even as early as three to four months after birth. One can start to see deficiencies in gait function. One can start to see deficiencies in terms of missing key neurologic developmental milestones. Um, and a physician might suspect that child has GM1 gangliosidosis, so we'll order a genetic test, which would be confirmatory. So initially, it's a clinical diagnosis based on clinical manifestations, and then genetics are done to confirm that diagnosis. But unfortunately, today, there are really no disease-altering therapies uh, available for these children. There's certainly nothing approved by any regulatory body. So consequently, these children usually succumb uh, to this disease by around age two or three. So it, it is a truly devastating disease for which new therapies uh, are absolutely necessary. And we hope that our strategy of gene therapy, which will look to replace the defective gene with the correct gene, can lead to a pretty profound clinical benefit. One of the issues that rare disease organizations wrestle with is how big a patient population they need to catch the attention of a drug developer. GM1, I believe, has a known population of about 200 cases today. Why GM1? What's the business case for pursuing this indication? Yeah, I, I don't know if you know my background, um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's pretty relevant for the answer to this question. So I was, prior to coming to OrbiMed, uh, spent over 25 years as a co-founder of Alexion Pharmaceuticals. And if you Google Alexion, you, you will see that we were one of the first, and, and probably at this point one of the biggest companies, to first tackle this world of ultra-rare or rare orphan diseases and develop a number of different therapies across four to five different rare diseases, most of which investors felt would have no marketability. And of 
course, Alexion today is about a $30 billion market cap company. And its drug, its lead drug, has you know about $4 billion in revenue a year. And the reason that's relevant is one of the diseases we went into, at the time we went into that disease, there were about 300 identified patients around the world with that disease. Today, it's, an, it's a $2 billion market for the company. Now, now, why is that? The reason for this is no matter what you read and no matter what you're being told about the incidence and prevalence of a disease as rare as GM1 gangliocidosis, you will be wrong. That's about the only thing I'm absolutely sure of. And this is really the hallmark of doing drug development in, in rare or ultra-rare diseases. Most clinicians have not seen patients with these diseases, so they don't even know what to look for. So once Alexion got out and started educating physicians about the signs and symptoms of some of these rare diseases, and now can offer a potential therapy, in some cases a life-saving therapy, suddenly the patient numbers grew exponentially. Now, we don't know that that's going to be the case today for GM1, but I certainly suspect that it'll be the case for GM1, because I think that's generally true of a lot of rare diseases. So my philosophy is I don't know what the patient numbers are today, I don't know definitively what the incidence and prevalence is today, but if I can develop a life-saving therapy for a child who's three months of age, who can now live and see holidays with their families for the next many, many, many years, I'm betting that there's going to be a commercial opportunity for that product. And, and don't let me try to discourage you. I don't intend to do that. But if you think of a drug like Solaris, which you referenced, that is a, a drug that has been able to expand its indications and is chronically administered to patients. This is a, a one well, and done. But, but, but remember, remember that's, all, that's all true. But the very first indication was a market of well over a billion dollars with what at the time was considered to be hundreds of patients. Fair enough. I'm wondering. So, it, so, so, so it's not just about expansion; it's about education, and it's about having the market appreciate how to find and recognize and then diagnose patients with these kinds of diseases. That's what it's all about. So, what I'm what I'm wondering and trying to get at is, as you look at yourself and and the investors who are backing this company with you. Uh, uh, as sophisticated a group of investors as you can find, as patient advocacy groups struggle with the question of how to engage a, a, a drug company to pursue a therapy for such a small indication, does this reflect any type of change in thinking? Is the belief that there's an opportunity here to perhaps accelerate the development of future therapies by using the same vectors to target the same the same cells and, and have some kind of accelerated yeah, I, I think there's maybe a bit of that, but I wouldn't say that the, the reason investors got into passage was related to, okay, let's start in these rare diseases, but the technology is going to be applicable and therefore expandable to diseases for which there's a real market, 
I actually believe that the investors in the company today believe that the diseases we're in are going to have fairly profound market opportunities. Are the vectors that are used from one indication to the next that you're pursuing the same, or are they different vectors for each condition? We, we evaluate different capsids or vectors. You can use the term interchangeably on a per-disease basis. So as we tackle a disease, we think about what might be required to be successful in that disease from a clinical perspective meaning which cell types do we need to hit, what percentage, CNS only, is there a systemic peripheral component, and then we go into non-human primate models and actually do the experiment to determine which capsid slash vector is going to be best suited for that disease. So what we're using for GM1, for example, is not at all alike what we're using for frontotemporal dimension, which is the second disease. So it's chosen on a per-disease basis. Well, frontotemporal, forgive me, uh, frontotemporal dementia is... You can just say FTD, that's easier. (laughs) It's It's an interesting indication, too, because it's... I think different than a lot of people would expect for a company pursuing a gene therapy in that it it is a later onset disease. What is the condition? How is that diagnosed? And and what's the opportunity there? Right. So it's a later onset disease, true, but much like GM1, it's a rapidly progressing disease. So there, there, there's not as much differences as you might, might imagine. Of course, one's pediatric, the other's adult. But once you see signs and symptoms of FTD, and, and keep in mind, we're, we're not looking at all patients with frontotemporal dementia. We're looking at a, maybe a 10 to 15% subset of FTD patients where the genetics are well-defined again and the genetics lead to deficiencies in, in a protein called progranulin. Okay. So it's a really interesting disease because these are patients that live five, six decades with these genetic mutations. Some have a complete deficiency of progranulin. Others are haploinsufficient, so they've got lower levels of progranulin. Nevertheless, they seem to lead fairly normal, healthy lives for five to six decades, Something then triggers the onset. We don't know exactly what that second signal is, but we presume there's a second signal. And these patients start to then show early signs of dementia. But unlike another dementia that we all know about, which would be Alzheimer's disease, patients with FTD and progranulin deficiency have a very, very quick devastating path towards death. I mean, most of these patients, from the time they're diagnosed, only live another six to eight years, where where patients with early Alzheimer's onset can live, you know, 20, 30 years with their disease. So it is is very, very different. Now, the strategy and the rationale for this disease is very similar to GM1, meaning you know the genetics, you know the defect, which gene is defective, you know that these patients have very, very low to no levels of a critical 
nerve growth factor-like protein called progranulin. So the strategy would be if we can catch them early enough in their disease progression that by restoring normal levels of this important neurotrophic factor, progranulin, that we can prevent the devastation that occurs in, in, the, in the frontal cortex of these patients. These patients lose frontocortical mass uh, on the rate of around 5% a year. So it, it's an extremely rapid, devastating neurode- adult neurodegenerative disease. But I think we have an opportunity to prevent that loss by restoring the normal levels of progranulin that are missing in these patients. Do you think you face a, a tougher discussion with payers over the value of a gene therapy for a 60-year-old than you would for a 2-year-old? You know, <laughs> I, I would say it's going to be a tough discussion with payers across all diseases. What, what I would hope is that those discussions actually become pretty easy when you've got really profound clinical benefit. If you don't have really profound clinical benefit, they become really difficult. I've been there. I've I've literally made the reimbursement argument around Solaris across maybe 30 to 50 countries, so lots of single-payer systems. And when you can walk into those meetings with a dossier and a portfolio of data showing that you've, you've transformed that patient's life or you saved that patient's life, whether it's a young child with GM1 or an adult with FDD who no longer recognizes themselves and has to be institutionalized at age 50, you know, it becomes a relatively straightforward argument, actually. Now, if the data doesn't support the profound transformative effect, you've got trouble, no question. What is the clinical timeline for these therapies, and how big a trial do you think you'll have to do for GM1? So we're not going to talk about trial size today because we haven't finalized our clinical development plans, but given that these are rare diseases, I wouldn't imagine these are generally you know, robust, large trials. These are going to be relatively small trials. On the other hand, you know, the number I'm not going to go to today because we haven't finalized the, the, the clinical trial plan. In terms of the timing, we would expect both GM1 and FTD to have INDs filed sometime early in 2020, and so by mid-2020, clinically active programs. Um, so we, we look forward to uh, launching those both next year. And as you look at other CNS conditions, how are you prioritizing your pipeline? Yeah, so, so that comes down to what Dr. Wilson would call his 90-10 rule. And actually, this is really important because it sets the strategy behind our selection of indications within, within the CNS. And the 90-10 rule this gets a little bit technical, so bear with me, but I'll do my best to explain it. The 90-10 rule is as follows. You have different types of neurons in the central nervous system. One type of neuron is called motor neurons, right? And, and motor neurons, you know, control motor function and so forth and so on. And for whatever reason, motor neurons tend to be just to take up AAV vectors to deliver gene therapies. 
They really love to take these vectors up. And you can get 90% of motor neurons effectively transduced with AAV vectors pretty easily, actually. So in motor neuron diseases, AAV vector strategy works really, really well. That's great. But if you're now in neurons that are outside of motor neurons, for example, FTD, the target cell type there is cortical neurons in the frontal cortex, right? Other diseases would be different types of neurons. We still haven't figured out a way to get more than 10 to 15% of those cells effectively transduced with an AAV vector. No matter how hard we've tried, we haven't cracked that yet. We continue to work on that at Passage or at 10, but we, we're not there yet. So what you have to then think about are diseases where even where you can only affect 10% of the cell population, those 10% cells can effectively make and secrete a therapeutic protein that can be then taken up by neighboring cells. We call this the bystander effect, or we call it cross-correctional therapies. So you don't need to have every cell affected by the AAV vector. Only 10% might be enough to get a profound global benefit within the brain. So we think about diseases where that 10% rule can provide enough to get a therapeutic effect. GM1, it's a secreted enzyme that's taken up by most cells. FTD, it's progranulin that's secreted that's taken up by most cells. So those diseases are of interest to us. Also, motor neuropathies are of interest to us, and one of our five indications will be a motor, adult motor neuropathy. So that's how we select our indications as we want to move forward. Stephen Squinto, co-founder and interim CEO of Passage Bio. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you as well. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>